0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Progress on the Path to Better Outcomes in RRMM. Expert perspectives on the further integration of BCMA-directed antibodies and cellular therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FMJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome uh, to this uh, satellite session. We appreciate everybody taking time. I'm Sagar Lonial, and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Patel, uh, from from MD Anderson. So let's start off talking about what I think is sort of the main focus for today, which is BCMA or B-cell maturation antigen. And what we know about BCMA is that it is almost universally expressed on all myeloma cells, on all plasma cells. It's a normal antigen on the surface of plasma cells. And we also understand that signaling through BCMA is responsible for many of the things that malignant plasma cells like to do to stay alive and evade therapy. It, it is resist- it's important for inducing proliferation or rapid dividing of the plasma cells. It's important for drug resistance. And it is an important part of the microenvironment binding that is really key for many plasma cells as they try and stay alive and avoid induced death by many of the treatments that we used to use. So interfering with the BCMA access, whether it's preventing binding with its ligands BAF or APRIL, or simply uh, binding BCMA and preventing it from doing anything else can have a significant impact on plasma cell survival. Now what we also know is that BCMA also allows us uh, to have an almost universal target on plasma cells that is different from other targets that we already have. So we know, for instance, that SLAMF7 is a ubiquitous target on plasma cells. We know that CD38 is a ubiquitous target on plasma cells. But none of them are as critical to plasma cell survival as BCMA is. So there's sort of a twofold reason uh, to really want to target BCMA and myeloma. Now when we talk about approvals uh, in targeting BCMA, the first approval was Belantamab mafodotin, an antibody drug conjugate, and we're going to talk about that in a few moments. Uh, the second approval was the first CAR T-cell in myeloma, or cell. And then the third approval is siltacell, the most recent CAR T-cell approved, uh, slightly different constructs, different binding affinities, different adverse event profiles, and we'll talk about that a little bit during the course of this session. And then finally, most recently, we've seen the EMA approval of the first BCMA-directed bispecific, teclistimab. Not yet in the U.S., but certainly that is available uh, uh, in Europe. So why do we need this target? Well, I would argue the more targets you have, the more likely you are to ultimately cure the disease. So that's certainly one reason to need another immune target to go after. But what we also know is that when you get to patients potentially with triple-class refractory myeloma, the ability to keep them on therapy is really limited. And what this slide really demonstrates is therapeutic attrition that occurs with each subsequent line of therapy. And what you'll notice is that in many of the trials we're going to talk about, patients have had five, six, seven, nine, I think the extreme on one of them was 18 prior lines of therapy. But we know that in order to get to 18 prior lines of therapy, you've probably lost a significant fraction of patients that were diagnosed at that same time who maybe got one or two lines of therapy. So really trying to maintain A, functional status, and B, the opportunity to get subsequent lines of therapy is really very important. What we also know is that patients with triple-class refractory myeloma historically have not had a good outcome. So patients that are resistant to IMIDS, proteasome inhibitors and anti-CD38 antibodies have a median overall survival of less than a year. And in some cases, depending upon how heavily pretreated they are, it's less than six months. And this really does represent a significant unmet medical need, And it is certainly the reason in 2020 to 2022, where we are now, that we wanted to have a new target like BCMA. And what I think you're going to hear, not just today, but in the future meetings, is about moving that use of that target earlier and earlier in lines of therapy. That's for different reasons. This is really being established for addressing the unmet medical need of triple-class refractory multiple myeloma. So um, my my family has told me I got to watch these master classes, and now after today I get to get, tell them I gave a master class. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm excited about this. Uh, so we're going to do a couple of case forum sessions, uh, talking a little bit about. CAR T-cells, we're gonna talk a little bit about antibody drug conjugates, we're gonna talk a little bit about biospecifics, and then we're gonna do some open Q&A uh, and really open discussion uh, between Dr. Patel and I on some of these challenges and what the data really helps us to do in the new future. So I'm gonna turn things over now to Dr. Patel, Associate Professor and Center Medical Director at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, to get us started in the session. Karina? Perfect, awesome.
2: All right, um, so thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, um, and I get to talk about my favorite topic first, that's my biggest COI, I am a CAR-T therapy enthusiast, so, um, enthusiast. Um, so the first uh, product that was approved for multiple myeloma, um, Idacel, um, really it was in March of 20, about a year ago, so a little bit over a year and a few months ago, um, it was one of the first trials we had for CAR-T for multiple myeloma. So here, the the product itself, of course, CAR-T, the the CAR that goes in, the chimeric antigen receptor, um, is different for all the different products and probably matters in terms of timing of toxicity, the type of toxicity, um, and when the expansion of the cells occur, um, et cetera. And so, again, this is an anti-BCMA single-chain variable fragment um, that's fused to a CD8 linker, which those are pretty similar for all of our um, CAR-Ts. 41 bb is the COSTIM molecule that actually helps Grow these cells and helps them persist, and again, similar for all of our CAR-T so far. And of course, the CD3-Zeta, which is similar for all T-cells. And again, the response rates, again, you know, you just saw the mammoth data. The patients who are, you know, triple refractory, pentarefractory really don't have great options. And these are patients that had six lines of therapy. To have an overall response rate of 89.5% and a CR rate of 36.9% is pretty phenomenal. So, uh, and again, this was a cell dose of 450 million cells, which is what we try to do for the standard of care patients. Um, And then in terms of the overall response rate for all patients, so remember these were different doses for this trial, um, but it was 73%, and again, the CRR rate was 33%. Um, We're having, you know, therapies that if one month you're seeing your really amazing responses. So median time to response was one month. um, To CR was about 2.8 months. um, And median follow-up for this study was about uh, 13.3 months. And again, that bar just shows you that the dose really does matter for this product, and so the 450 million dose um, had the best response rates. And again, the deeper responses. And then PFS, um, again, for the doses um, at 450, you see that the PFS is about 12.1 months. So pretty phenomenal for a group of patients that were very heavily treated. And in terms of overall survival, um, you know, they did see a difference with patients who had, um, um, depending on what line of therapy they were, um, but again, all patients, it was 24.8 months. So a phenomenon we're all seeing is that patients who get some of these therapies, even if their PFS isn't as long as we wanted it to be, you know, we wanted it to be a cure, but not quite there yet, their survival has actually improved um, just by getting it itself. I think the biggest um, excitement we have now is a lot of these trials were done in patients who are earlier lines of therapy. So in the relapse refractory setting, um, there is a you know attrition rate—patients that don't make it the, to the actual CAR T's because of their disease, because of manufacturing issues, all kinds of things. So now doing it earlier, you know, hopefully we get better responses. Can we actually get? More patients access um, in terms of getting their cells and all the way through, and then can we potentially get you know hopefully cures one day? But again, so Karma three, the data is not out, but they had a uh, release that talked about um, you know that it was a positive study, and hopefully we'll learn more about it. But again, the trial design is you you get CAR T either in lines two to four, or you get a standard of care that was FDA approved at the time um, based on what's listed there. And then, now that we have standard of care um, products, for the last year and a half, um, there's a consortium of about 11 centers, and, and Doris Hansen from Moffitt did a great job presenting this at IMS recently, looking at patients who, in the real world, were able to get the CAR-T. So, this was about 154 patients or so um, that received a BECMA, or cell, and basically ended up... Um, 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 looking at their responses, 77% of these patients wouldn't have been eligible for CARMA either because of organ issues or because they had prior BCMA therapy, which I know will be a big discussion point for us in terms of sequencing. Um, and again, these, these patients um, actually did really, really well. Now, if you got um, BC, uh, if you got if you didn't meet CARMA criteria, you actually did a little bit worse, but still had a great uh, PFS. <laughs> So, then going to our second CAR T. So, we we're really excited, right? Our first CAR T came through. We couldn't get enough slots, but now we have a second one, too. So, we're going to have more access, which has been phenomenal to have, have more options for patients. Um, and this, this car is a little bit different. So, Siltacell has two different um, epitopes, SEFEs. And again, the, the, um, what they use is a llama car so that you can actually get more of those um, epitopes in there because it's bigger. Um, but still, you know, against BCMA. And here, um, their cell dose is actually a little bit lower, but response rates, 97.9%, as we've um, probably all seen this, and the depth of response of 82.5%. And at ASCO, they actually were able to show us the data for the last patients who had been on it for two years already, and the overall response rate was still 98%. Um, 83% achieved an astringent CR over time. And now there's CARTA-2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 that are looking at different cohorts of patients that are getting cell at an earlier uh, time point and with different other therapies. So looking at PFS... Again, fantastic um, results that we've seen with, with another car again, a one-and-done therapy that we don't have for myeloma otherwise. Um, and, and again, overall survival has been um, pretty phenomenal with these different cohorts. Um, so here we don't have as much data yet for our patients getting real-world um, silticel. Um, there just haven't been as many patients. It was just approved a few months ago. But what they did do, um, the, the, um, Dr. Mateos um, and, and the group actually looked at other patients in the same timeline um, that were, you know, um, looked at in the same cohort type of patients that actually did not get cell, but got other standard-of-care therapies. And it's multiple different therapies. And, of course, there's limitations to this type of study. But what it showed is that the progression-free survival was very different for the patients who got cell versus if they weren't on that trial, um, as well as survival. Again, overall survival is different for these patients. So even though we're not seeing those cures, for me, this is very, very strong data to say we need to get um, these therapies to our patients. And then, of course, the phase 3 CARTITUDE uh, five trial that's looking at VRD followed by SUTA cell versus VRD followed by RD maintenance in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. So we're really excited to see if you know this data um, for patients who wouldn't necessarily get auto stem cell transplant, how is this going to look now? Um, you know, I think high dose melphalan has been here forever and we know it works, but now let's see if we can actually beat that um, for the near future. So we're really excited about this study coming down. So then it comes down to what are the general principles for effective delivery of CAR T cells? And I think anybody that does cell therapy right now knows the, the slot is the biggest issue. But um, again, the, the two differences between the cells are really the cell dose, um, but in general, it's, it's the same way. So you basically have to have a center that does CAR T and um, referral to a certified healthcare facility. Um, you know, we, we don't use lympho- leukodepleting filters uh, for most when administering. Um, We avoid prophylactic use of dexamethasone or other systemic corticosteroids that can actually kill the cells um, beforehand. And then the adverse events is the biggest thing to really be able to monitor those, especially in the first 30 days. So that's where we see most of the CRS, ICANs, those types of things happening. Um, But there are some patients that can get HLH, where it's more than just regular CRS and macrophage activation syndrome, and really trying to find ways to minimize that and, and finding the patients who are at higher risk of that Um, And then really having that communication between the center that does the CAR-T versus the community um, physicians who are taking care of those patients. That is very integral to making sure patients have good outcomes. And then further, um, you know, again, these patients get a lymphodepletion chemo. So we talk about one and done, which is great, but they are getting some chemo beforehand to really help decrease those endogenous T cells that could otherwise kill off the CAR-T we do pre-medicate with um, acetaminophen and usually an H1 antihistamine um, to avoid other infusion reactions. The, you know, you have to have tocilizumab usually at least two doses per patient when your when patients are getting these um, types of therapies. And again, there is a REMS program, um, which is um, you know to make sure our patients um, are very safe and have the best outcomes possible. So then again, looking at the toxicity now, of the two different products, you know, CRS for all is about 95, 84%, but you see grade three, four, compared to what we used to see in lymphoma at the very beginning is actually much lower, so 5%, um, which is great. The median onset to CRS is different between the two products, and again, this comes down to the construct itself, how it expands in the patient, um, and when the highest expansion is. So for cell it's, it's actually a little bit later after the infusion, around seven days, and median for Ida cell is one day, so usually fevers and then um, we take care of it. ICANs, again, very low, um, but grade 3, 4, 2%, 3%, percent, percent, which is great, except you still have to monitor just in case for those patients. Infections, you know, with our newer BCMA therapies in general, we'll probably talk about this, but um, grade 3-4 is still about 20, 22 percent of uh, patients get grade 3-4 infections. Again, these patients had six lines of therapy going in here. Um, And neutropenia greater than one month, um, which, you know, we we need to monitor as well, was about 10 percent for Sultacel, 41 percent for Idacel. Um, And same thing with thrombocytopenia, um, greater than one month. Now, most patients after six months do recover, um, but we're still monitoring pretty closely. And then this delayed neurotoxicity, um, which right now we are monitoring very closely. But for patients who had Silticel, and actually even a couple of patients in our real-world data for idacel, basically can get these neurotoxicities that are more movement disorders, Parkinsonianism-type symptoms, that happen after the 30 days or 27 days. And so that's really where we monitor our patients with our community doctors, because these patients are going back to their their community doctors um, to say, okay, if you have changes in your handwriting, if you have changes in other neurological symptoms, call us right away so we can figure out what to do to intervene quickly. Now, giving better bridging therapy um, for siltacel has seemed to help decrease this in all the other studies. So now it's 0.5%. So really, it's patients that have a lot of disease going in. Um, If we can knock that down, it seems to help. So you know, we'll see um, in the future what we can do with those patients. So then, coming to our case. um, So Robert is a 65-year-old man has standard-risk ISS stage two relapse refractory multiple myeloma. Initially had RVD induction transplant len maintenance had a CR. Three and a half years um, did well, but then progressed, and so was put on um, Dera Carfilzumib Dex and got a VGPR. Did well, but after a year, um, progressed again, and now was put on elotuzumab Pomalidomide Index, and then eight months later, progressed again, and now had Selenexor, bortezomib Index, had stable disease, and eventually progressed. Um, ECOG is still great, performance status of one, but now obviously, you know, penta exposed um, and, and multi refractory um, patient here. So, Dr. Lonial, you think CAR T is an option for this patient?
1: Yeah, you know, I think this is a really good case uh, because I think it illustrates a couple of really important points. And uh, yes, I think CAR T cell certainly does make sense in this in this uh, in this young man uh, with myeloma. Um, I do think uh, you know when when you think about referral process. To me, that time of first or second salvage is probably the time when you want somebody to come in. I, I don't know how you guys feel about that. but
2: Yeah, because of, I think, just the time it takes to get insurance approvals, right. to make sure right. we have a slot right. for them when they need it, agreed.
1: Right. Yeah, I think you know the other interesting and important point to think about is, um, is there an upper age limit for, for giving a CAR T-cell? And I'll say this having just gave, given an 82-year-old a CAR T-cell. Um, who was in great shape, and I think in many ways it is like a transplant in the sense that you can say yes to older patients and no to younger patients based purely on performance status um, and so um, I think the the intensity of treatment is a lot less with a car than it is with transplant, and so i 'm probably a little bit more liberal i'm,
0: I'm
2: yeah, we actually, um, uh, Nilesh is out there, has a, a poster for our older patients above 70, and we had 3 two 82 282-year-olds. Um, they actually had 100% response rate, and only one's relapsed, right? So, again, I think you can't say no based on age. Um, yeah. There are differentiating factors, but I agree with you. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Okay. So then the patient is referred to a specialized CAR-T center, um, gets CAR-T, has grade 2 CRS, Um, You know, so questions are, what are the next steps? And, you know, I think um, for us at MD Anderson, we would use tosiluzumab at this point. But I don't know if, you know, a lot of centers are using TOSI even at grade one CRS. um, So not sure what happens at Emory.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think usually that line blurs pretty quickly. um, And so uh, I think uh, certainly we're, we're using it in... 1.5 uh, um, uh, CRS, and I think all of us have, have gotten more comfortable with it, but I think this idea of dealing with CRS, which often uh, presents with fever, hypotension, requires pretty vigorous fluid resuscitation, is you need to make sure that the patient has good cardiac function. That's probably one of the biggest important factors when you're thinking about whether or not a CAR-T is appropriate or not appropriate really is, is cardiac function.
2: Yeah, if they can take two to three liters of fluid, they're usually okay. So, perfect. And then with that, I will hand it back to Dr. Lonial. So I'm
1: going to talk about the other area, uh, or one of the three areas, where we have approved drugs uh, in the context of BCMA, uh, and that is the antibody drug conjugate. And so, um, Bellomath or belantamab mafodotin, was the first BCMA-directed therapy to be approved, and it is an antibody drug conjugate, but it does have the ability to fix, complement, and bind to effector cells. So unlike other antibody drug conjugates that are out there that were designed specifically not to interact with the immune system, Velomaf was in fact designed to interact with the immune system and ultimately kill through multiple mechanisms of action that include the antibody drug conjugate itself, uh, the MMAF, and we're going to talk about the unique adverse events associated with MMAF, ADCC or ADCP, as well as immunogenic cell death, which I think we all really are learning a lot more about now, because immunogenic cell death may allow us to create antigen-specific T cells in the long run that may help us prevent recurrence of myeloma down the road. So that is certainly something I think we're all very excited about uh, as a mechanism of action. Now, belantamab mafodotin was approved based on the DREAM-2 study, uh, and this is the longer follow-up of that DREAM-2 study. And recall that DREAM-2 was a randomized Phase two study looking at two different doses of Belomath. And they, uh, uh, the, the FDA, when they helped, when the desi- early design came out, saw that the MTD was about uh, um, uh, 3.5 mil- 3.4 milligrams per kilogram and said, well, what if we do a lower dose to see whether the toxicity is any different? Because there weren't a lot of patients at the 2.5 milligram dose uh, treated in the phase one study. And so it turned out that the 2.5 milligram per kilogram was the better dose. It was a safer dose. And while the response rate of 30% is consistent with other drugs approved in triple-class refractory myeloma, including daratumumab, which had a response rate of about 30%, median PFS of about three months, and median DOR in refractory myeloma of about nine to ten months, carfilzomib had a response rate of about 26%, with a median PFS of three months, median DOR of about seven to eight months. Bortezomib had a response rate of 30% with a median PFS of 3 months and a median DOR of about 11 months. So this is sort of in that same ballpark for those other drugs uh, that have now become backbone agents for us in a number of different ways. And what you're seeing here is that the DOR was about 11 months in this phase 2 study. And the reason that I'm focusing on DOR is that to me DOR represents an amalgamated endpoint between efficacy, which is the response rate, and safety if you have a drug that's highly effective, but it's impossible to give, then the DOR will be short. And we've seen that with other drugs approved in the last few years, where the PFS is short and the DOR is equally short, even though the response rate may look similar. So I think this is important when we think about exposing our patients to drugs that are new and different, and Belomaph with its unique ocular toxicity is new and different, and trying to reassure them that actually the safety is actually pretty reasonable, and the DOR helps us to establish that. Now, as we do in myeloma, um, and I think we sort of sometimes get made fun of this, if we see a drug work by itself, our first thing we want to do is start to combine it with something else. And based on that ADCC, ADCP mechanism that I showed you earlier, a great partner for this antibody was, were the image. And so the Algonquin study was designed and run in Canada. Uh, and what you can see here is that looking at different doses and schedules, and I think that's an important part of the Algonquin study, is that we're not sticking to the same dose and schedule when we're beginning to combine. Just like we understood, for instance, that bortezomib uh, maybe weekly reduce the incidence of peripheral neuropathy, we're starting to play with the dose of Belomath as well. And what you're seeing is very high response rates, depending upon which subset of patients you look at. Anywhere from uh, 80% to 90% in one small subset, it was 100% response rate, and we know that with you're not gonna, or POMDEX, you're not going to get that response rate. And we know with BELLA alone, you're not going to get that response rate. So it really does represent synergy between the antibody and the IMID compound. Now, um, this is data, um, actually, that uh, I'm going to uh, update a little bit as well um, in the next session, looking at the combination with a lenalidomide. And this, again, demonstrates that you can combine these drugs, again, looking at alternative doses and schedules. And more importantly, this combination does actually result in that synergy that I mentioned by combining with an immunomodulatory agent. What I think was really quite exciting, though, was the data that was presented at ASCO. And at ASCO, what we saw was data on um, uh, belamaf in combination with a gamma secretase inhibitor. And as you may recall, gamma secretase is the enzyme that's naturally present in our bodies that clips BCMA off of the cell and releases it into the plasma. And circulating or soluble BCMA, it may be an important mechanism of drug resistance. It may be an important sink for drugs that are binding BCMA until you start to reduce the tumor burden. And so the idea was by giving a GSI, as we've seen in CAR T-cell studies, we've seen in other studies as well targeting BCMA, increases expression of BCMA and reduces soluble BCMA. And what we saw in the DREAM5 study here was that by using the gamma secretase inhibitor, you could use lower doses of belantamab and get the same efficacy, potentially with less ocular toxicity. So this truly, I think, does represent an important step forward, not just for the ADC, but for targeting BCMA in general, where we know oftentimes when we see escape, it's from a low BCMA expressed population. It's not often a no-BCMA-expressed population. So that's different than what we see with other, uh, uh, other CAR T-cell or vis-specific targets like CD19. But that low population sometimes escapes elimination, and perhaps a gamma secretase inhibitor may help you to enhance removal of that low-BCMA population. Now, keratopathy is the unique adverse event that we see with Belomath. This is, uh, occurs in about 70% of patients uh, across the board. You can see the data from the DREAM2 study. Not everybody who has keratopathy, which is an exam finding, actually has symptoms. And I think that that's important. And, in fact, if you look at the orange column here, which represents the number of patients in DREAM2 that actually had BCVA changes of 2050 or more. So BCVA is best corrected visual acuity. 2050 or more changes are two lines on the Snellen chart. So I think we all vaguely remember being in ophthalmology as medical students or residents where we had to look at that, or for our glasses we had to look at that. If you drop by two lines, that's a 2050 or more change in your best corrected visual acuity. That only occurred in about 18% of patients. Most patients had less than that, or their main symptom was dry eyes or itchy eyes. So again, with appropriate mitigation strategies, you can reduce the incidence of significant keratopathy through these kinds of approaches. And it really does require a partnership with an ophthalmologist, uh, which is often the initial hurdle that we all have to deal with. I don't think ophthalmologists are used to our level of urgency. When we see a patient that we want to put on something, we don't want to wait six months for them to get in to see the ophthalmologist. We want to do it this week, uh, perhaps this day. Uh, And you got to find the ophthalmologist that's willing to help you do that. Now, what I will say is that optometrists can do this as well. So if, if you're in a very small place where an optometrist is a better or easier option, that certainly is reasonable. I remember asking the chair of ophthalmology at the University of Chicago, who did a lot of work on Bellomaf pre-approval, how difficult is it to see these microcysts and to quantify them? And her response to me is, ophthalmology residents learn how to do this on day one. First day of residency, this is what we teach them how to use. So it's not, doesn't require lots of specialized training. It is pretty easy to do, uh, but you gotta find somebody that's willing to be on your timetable, or rather the patient's timetable, in order to get it done in an efficient manner. So what are some practical points on Belomaph? Well again, the the dose is 2.5 mg per kg over about 30 minutes, and it's given every three weeks. And so when we think about treatments that we're gonna use in a refractory myeloma patient population, Having them come in once every three weeks for treatment is actually pretty easy when you think about it. I mean, there are many other things we do where the supportive care requires that they come in two times or three times a week with multiple antiemetics or other treatment approaches that can sometimes be challenging for patients in the context of refractory myeloma. This is one dose every three weeks. Uh, there is some hematologic toxicity with thrombocytopenia and neutropenia being the most common events, not uncommon in a refractory myeloma patient population, but I think as people taking care of hemo malignancy patients, we're pretty comfortable managing some of those adverse events. And then again, anticipate and counsel the patients about this. And one of the most important things that I think I tell patients is, this is not like traditional therapy where if you miss a dose or two, you're worried you're gonna lose control of the myeloma. If you look at patients that had to have dose holds of more than 10 weeks on the DREAM2 study, meaning missing three doses, 80% of them stabilized or deepened their response in that dose hold. So what that tells me and what we can tell our patients is you don't have a high chance of progression, even if you have to hold multiple doses to allow keratopathy to reverse. And keratopathy does reverse. It's a reversible endpoint. There's been nobody that I'm aware of that's had permanent or irreversible keratopathy uh, based on treatment with belantamab mafodotin. So let's do a couple of cases then on this one. Uh, and uh, I'll engage Dr. Patel here as well. So uh, this is a 70-year-old woman who presented with relapsed refractory myeloma, presenting after multiple relapses. She does have underlying coronary disease with class 2 CHF, and limited mobility. Uh, her initial treatment was RVD with a transplant and then Len Maintenance, achieved a CR. Five years later, developed progression, then got Darapomdex, had a VGPR. After about one and a half years, developed progression, got KCD. Uh, subsequently uh, had progression, then got uh, selenexer bortezomib dex with stabilization of disease, but no real response, and uh, sort of does need urgent therapy. Uh, because as we know, sometimes as the protein numbers get out of whack and you've got poorly controlled heart failure, it becomes a challenge in managing volume status and diuretic status. So uh, this is a patient who doesn't really want to go out of their small town uh, to spend a month in a specialized uh, center to receive uh, therapy, either CAR-T or what we'll hear about is bispecific therapy, and has a performance status of two. So I'll turn it over to Dr. Patel and get her comments on this case.
2: Yeah. So I think this patient's seen almost every you know other myeloma therapy that we have available, all different kinds of mechanisms of action, seven different drugs, um, and the fact that performance status of two, possibly from comorbidities, um, and that she doesn't have access to specialized care. I think BCMA ABC makes sense. Um, you have a different, a new molecule, you know, a new mechanism of action. That's how my level patients do so well now, um, and this would be perfect, I think, for her. Um, no, you know, usually we don't see major issues with other comorbidities, things yeah. like that. So these are the patients that do well, even in you know patients who have um, some renal failure. So if she had that, um, and I think the CAR T piece, right? So I, I, I think the the fact that you know she doesn't have access is is big. You have to have you know, appropriate care, um, loved ones that can take care of you, you know, support, that in case something happens, um, that they can bring you in. And if you don't have that, if you can't come in to stay at nearby um, at the center, then that really is a big piece of why CAR-T patients do well. And so for that reason, that you know, I would say that CAR-T is probably not the right thing for her there. And the other one is she needs therapy quickly. Um, so if it takes six to eight weeks to make cells, you're going to need something to, to actually treat first.
1: No, I think that's, and and I like a couple of points that you brought up uh, for further discussion. The first is the context of renal insufficiency, which we know many of these uh, patients with limited mobility and heart failure can have. Um, and, and at least in my mind, the advantage of an antibody is that you don't really worry about it so much in the context of renal insufficiency. Exactly. Now, that's probably not on the label, so I, I'm, I'm going off the range here. What, what I can tell you is that we've got a small series at our center, and I'm sure you've got experience of treating people with creatinines over two, uh, where they actually did fine with, right. with, uh, with the antibody drug conjugate. Now, I'm going to ask you the really hard question. When you're using Belomath, mm-hmm. do you use it alone, or do you partner with something else based on all the really exciting stuff we've seen.
2: Yeah, so again, off-label, yeah. but based on trials, so. um, we, I usually do put it with pomalidomide, yeah. low-dose, or something else yeah. um, in the really relapsed refractory patients, right? right? So yeah. my other frail patients, maybe I'll, I'll use it alone, yeah. but for most patients, I try to do the combinations.
1: Yeah, no, I agree, and, and it's not, you're not combining the POM, at least in my mind, because you think the palm's going to kill right. myeloma. It's really trying to activate the immune system exactly. to make it better uh, as an antibody as well. All right, so if Bellamaph is chosen, we talked about this uh, in terms of coordination with ophthalmology. Did you guys set this up at your center so you've got some go-to folks that will get them in at a timely manner?
2: Yep, yeah, Dr. Patel, she, we, there's two of us. It's great. Yeah. So she's fantastic, and, and their ophthalmology team, to, like you said, you need those right. appointments quickly. You can't wait right. weeks, so you definitely need that.
1: Yeah, and one of the things at least that we noticed, because we do have a couple of go-to ophthalmologists at our center, one of the things we noticed was this one patient was taking a really long time to recover, and it turns out the technicians were doing the assessment of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the microcysts. And the microcysts had completely resolved, but they were still being called grade 2 because the vision had not re- recurred. Well, that was because there was a cataract there. Uh, It wasn't necessarily related to the drug itself. It was unmasking something that had likely been there before or was getting worse as patients get more corticosteroids. So that's something you got to, sometimes if it doesn't fit, you got to really push the the definition a little bit sometimes. And I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Patel as we play Dancing Chairs and let her (laughs) talk about bispecifics.
2: Perfect. It's keeping me from getting a DVT. Fantastic. Okay, so the next 10 minutes I will talk about all the awesome therapies that we don't have approved yet in the U.S., but hopefully will actually give us more access to some of these great immune therapies um, and new novel mechanisms of action. So T-cell engagers, um, you know, we have it for different uh, blood cancers, but in myeloma... Um, we finally have BCMA-specific T-cell engagers. So again, engagement of T-cells to malignant cells um, that expresses BCMA. So it brings the myeloma, the T-cells to the myeloma. I think of it as handcuffs or magnets, you can say, um, that brings them there and activates it a little bit so that the T-cells can kill that myeloma cell. Okay, so teclistimab, one of our first um, studied T cell redirecting bispecific antibodies, again, binds CD3 on the T cells to the BCMA on the myeloma cell, brings them together, activates the T cells, and then leads to lysis of the myeloma cell. Um, and this was a Majestic 1 study, and basically the RP2D is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, and they had a step-up dosing twice of 0.06 and then 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. And, of course, this is a preventative measure or de- trying to decrease CRS that can occur, so we're trying to slowly ramp up those T cells instead of all at once. Um, So in the study, these were triple-class exposed uh, patients that had um, greater than three prior lines. Again, response rates, you know, 63%. So remember, all of our other therapies before this, um, besides CAR-T, the the response rates have been about 30% single-agent and approved. So this is at least twice that, which has been pretty amazing. And then MRD negativity in about um, a a fourth of patients, 24.7% of patients. And then you can see um, the response rate. So this is a big question we have right now that, and I think we'll probably discuss a lot of questions that have come in about this. If you've used one BCMA therapy, can you use another? And I think that's a little bit of a complicated question. Um, But here you can see the patients who had prior ADC or CAR-T, then getting the BCMA therapy still had really great responses. They are a little bit lower, so 55% for all ADC exposed, 53% for CAR-T exposed, um, and in general, 53%. So it's 10% or so lower, but still fantastic responses. And then you can see the swimmer's plot. I mean, there are patients who are over a year and longer um, that are still ongoing with their response. And the safety was actually really similar between the two. And so then, of course, we have um, our other BCMA, CAR-T, that's coming right down the road as well, Elronapmab in in relapse refractory patients. And this is the MAGNETISM-1 study that looked at sub-q administration of ELRA, um, and again, the dose escalation here. And they also had a priming dose um, initially, followed by the full dose. And so again, looking at the patients who had prior BCMA therapy, I mean, here you see patients that are ongoing even two years later um, that have had great responses. And the overall response rate for all patients is 64%, the stringent CR, CR rate about 35%. Um, And then those patients who had that CR, stringent CR, again, we know that the the depth of response really matters in in these patients with these new novel therapies, but 100% had gotten MRD negativity and 62% of those evaluable patients um, greater than six months. And we think that sustained MRD um, probably means a longer PFS. So then there's other um, emerging uh, data also with other BCMA CD3 um, uh, antibodies, so Regeneron 5458, um and it targets T cell effector and function as well for cytotoxicity. And again, the, the response rates at the higher dose levels between 200 and 800, 75% um, overall response rate, and then greater than VGPR, 58%, um, and 43% of patients with CR. And again, MRD negativity for the valuable patients, usually in the CR. And again, swimmer's plot of you know over 20 months for some of those patients already. So pretty pretty phenomenal. Um, for all of these different uh, BCMA bispecifics for patients who have had BCMA therapy or not. Um, so again, there's others as well. So TNB383B. Um, and then we have other antigens, which is really exciting for myeloma, that it's not just about BCMA. And what are we going to do with that in the future? So talquetamab um, against GPRC5D, and then Sevastamab with FCRH5. Um, so again, Making um, lives a little bit more complicated, but again more fun, and hopefully being able to cure myeloma one day with all of these new new therapies. Um, and then, in terms of the safety for these, again CRS is still the most common thing that we see, but mostly grade one. You see here, you know, fifty percent of the patients that had grade one, um, and grade two was, was a lower number, and, and barely any grade three, if if at all. Um, patients do have some other. Um, you know, headache, eye cans, but again, pretty low in terms of that. And neurotoxicity is not very seen very often as well. Um, again, the LRA data shows pretty much the same thing. You do see CRS at the dose escalation, um, 100% of patients, but mostly grade 1, a few grade 2, no grade 3. Okay, so get into our case. <laughs> try to do it in four minutes. Um, so we're back to Robert. We're just using the same patient because I think it kind of helps us decide, you know, what are the different therapies that we can use or what are the best therapies for each patient? So again, he had had RVD induction, transplant, had a CR three half years later, had progression, went on to DERACAR-DEX, got a VGPR, progressed after one year, EPD, after eight months, celly um, bortezomib-DEX, had stable disease, and then um, still has ECOG performance status of one, but now requires immediate therapy. He's got disease everywhere, um, and also doesn't have access to specialized care. So, uh, Dr. Lonial, assuming the patient can get a novel bispecific, um, such as teclistamab, you know, what are the relevant dosing and safety considerations that you think about, you know, for patients getting uh, bispecific therapy?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question for us to really think through because, hopefully, in short order, we will have the ability to do this in real life and think through who should we direct towards a biospecific or a car, or do you sequence them and how do you put all that together? And we can save some of that for for later in the Q&A. But I I think, you know, when we think about this, um, I I on average, and I think we said this in the last uh, discussion, when I think about the toxicity of a car, uh, particularly CRS and neuro, for BCMA, I think about it on average one grade less than what we see with CD19. When I think about a BCMA bispecific, I think about it on average one grade less than what we see with a BCMA CAR T-cell. So I think that yes, the, the incidence of the CRS and neurotoxicity is predominantly grade one, grade two, but at least in the current way that we do it, it still requires patients to be in the hospital for those priming doses. I don't think we've yet figured out the exact timing to know when to predict this so that you can do it completely as an outpatient. That may come, I hope that that will come. Uh, and so I think making sure that the patient's okay with the idea of going to the hospital. I mean, you'd be surprised how many patients say, I don't want to go in the hospital, so I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and so I think that is something that, that we need to think about. From a functional status, again, good cardiac reserve, functional status is pretty good. Uh, if they get a little goofy uh, during the treatment, that they can recover to a exactly. reasonable baseline. I think those are the things that I really think about.
2: Perfect. Yep. Um, and I think the... So this is actually coming back to your case now. Yeah. Um, so our 70-year-old woman with relapsed refractory disease um, had, you know, class 2 CHF and now had had the Belomath, um, did great, got 14 months of a duration of response and then had progressive disease. Mm-hmm. So now that she's BCMA exposed, do you think she could get a BCMA specific as the next step if it's available?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's. I think it's a great question. And certainly it brings up an important topic, which many of you have asked in some of your questions, about what is the definition of resistance to a BCMA-directed therapy? And I don't think it's as simple as they've progressed on a prior BCMA-directed therapy. Um, I think if you've had a car and you're two years out, Uh, and your myeloma comes back, that's not BCMA resistance. And I think that the mechanism of resistance to an ADC may be very different than the mechanism of resistance to a bispecific, and so I would certainly be very willing to entertain this as as a reasonable treatment option.
2: Do you think with her underlying coronary artery disease, would that worry you for a bispecific, or your, depends? Yeah, I mean, I
1: think this is a case where I'd want my cardio-oncologist to be on board with me ahead of time to make sure we've optimized her, her status before we give her the bispecific. Um, You might think about a little bit more protracted observation period. Um, You might just sort of do, uh, uh, as my colleague in, in Atlanta says, a really, really talk with them and say, this could happen. Uh, we may challenge your heart failure a little bit with lots of volume if we need to, but if right. everybody understands the risks, I think that it's a reasonable yep. option.
2: No, and I completely agree. I think we've had similar outcomes with even heart failure patients getting standard of care CAR-T. It's right. making sure you've thought about it ahead of time. Right. And I think the other point that most of the CRS happens in that first one to two doses, and then we actually right. don't see it anymore. So right. you're hospitalized, but then you're not, and then you're doing well. So perfect. Perfect. We can go to the Q and A.
1: Okay, great, thank you. And so we do have a lot of questions here, which are great. Um, and if anybody wants to stand or raise their hand, they're welcome to do that as well. Um, so let's start with a couple that are here while you guys are playing on the iPads. Um, assuming there is uh, earlier and potentially first line of BCMA therapy, our subsequent re-challenges out of the question. So I sort of took my spin on BCMA resistance. What's your spin on BCMA resistance?
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's the mechanism of action of each therapy that matters the most. So if you have T cell exhaustion as your mechanism of reaction, well, there might be, you know, you shouldn't do CAR T right after something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I I do think there is BCMA dimming, and I probably, you know, we do have some data um, from culinary's lab, actually, that she presented at IMS, that there are some clones that actually can lose BCMA in in certain therapies. Um, But again, I think that that that's something we still don't, you know, know about that I would say, yes, I I do think people can have um, different BCMA therapies at different time points.
1: I do think it's, again, important to recognize loss of BCMA, which is different from DIMM, does occur in probably less than 5% of patients. And they typically, at least in the case reports so far, have been patients with biallelic deletion of the gene for BCMA on chromosome 16. And as you know, we don't currently test for chromosome 16 loss uh, as part of our routine FISH panels, but it seems to be enriched among patients who have 17P deletion. So patients who are intrinsically higher risk, maybe at better risk, at higher risk for losing BCMA expression, when I'm going to retreat a patient with a BCMA-directed therapy, I actually stain the marrow for BCMA expression. And that's usually a pretty good marker. Uh, Soluble BCMA may be another marker. I hear that 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 test is about to be on the market. Uh, So there are other ways you can look to ensure that a patient still does express BCMA. Uh, So let's see. Uh, rationale for BCMA and anti-CD38 combinations in myeloma. I'll let you handle that. Yeah,
2: no, I think as you said, we get made fun of this all the time, but it makes sense. We we do combination therapies because those plasma cells get smart on us pretty quickly, and so to really decrease those resistant mechanisms um, from occurring, the combination makes sense. And I think immunotherapy with immunotherapy makes a lot of sense as well. And we do have studies that um, are ongoing, or um, you know, there's been some early clistamab plus um, daratumumab, for instance. Um, that at least shows safety, and hopefully we'll start seeing some more of the long um, outcomes
1: yeah, for that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a really interesting context, and, uh, and I, I still would sort of throw in there, we know that immune therapy is effective. We know that when you add an image in, it gets even more effective. And so to me, that's really where I think the sweet spot is, is thinking about how do we partner all of these great classes together to maximize benefit from these treatments. What do you recommend yeah. for lower-grade CRS with BCMA CARs?
2: Yeah, so for us, we, we are we st- we we stick to, you know, if, if it's really just fevers, um, we just give supportive care, and most patients turn around in a few days after that. Um, if if their fevers are lasting or causing a lot of symptoms for them, like more than three days, then we'll go ahead and treat with TOSI just to help them feel better. Um, but really, there's no prophylaxis as of yet. I know there's studies, both in lymphoma and myeloma, looking at preventative strategies like giving TOSI early or giving DEX a dose or, or anakinra, but again, we don't know really the mechanism of resistance, or any, you know, if it changes mm-hmm. outcomes. So um, we don't do anything as a standard of care for now.
1: Yeah, I think there's one study in lymphoma where preemptive tosi was it tosi or steroids. Actually, the outcomes were a little worse.
2: So, yeah, um, and, and use of DEX, I think, too. Yeah. So, yeah we've, we've, yeah, we've been able to, I think Seth Van Yolo, who's been um, able to publish some of that data.
1: Yeah, it is sort of interesting to think about, though, and Larry Boyce from our lab group actually brought this up. We know that IL-6 in myeloma is a drug-resistance pathway. Exactly. So if you have CRS with high levels of IL-6, are you making it harder for the car to kill those myeloma cells? And so there may be a thought about preemptive therapy yeah. that, that might make sense, but it hasn't been tested yet. So there's a question here about low-dose Belomav potentially expand its use as a combo partner. I think the answer is absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the idea of using 2.5 every three weeks as a partnership uh, with something else probably is not going to fly. I think the idea, however, of using uh, the GSI inhibitor allows you to get similar efficacy with a lower dose and may sort of set this up for partnership with other drugs there's phase one trials combining with a proteasome inhibitor, combining with uh, both imids, and these are ongoing currently. So I think you're going to see a lot of that data uh, in the near future. So I'll uh, ask you this one about belamaf as a bridge to CAR T.
2: Yeah. So again, I, without knowing any really resistant you know mechanism patterns or what happens in the acute term with BCM expression, um, I, I you know I use whatever I can to bridge patients, especially fifth line is really hard to get patients through and to wait, again, one, two, three months sometimes for their CAR-Ts to come back. So if they haven't had it, um, I have used it before. Um, but again, I think it's something that we'll probably need to look at in more detail in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the advantage is usually within one to two doses, you know whether it's working. It's working. And if you've got a patient that's seen everything out there and chemo is not really a great option. Uh, after you've collected T-cells, then this might be a way to give them something truly unique. Um, So there's a question here, CAR-T versus transplant, who wins?
2: Any of my Uh transplant colleagues here? Okay, CAR-T, well, right now we don't know, right? Um, I I, I was a melphalan girl back in the day, um, and I still, most of my patients go through transplant, so I don't think we have enough data yet, but I'm hopeful, being a millennial, that maybe we'll beat melphalan one day.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, and, and I, it's almost an unfair question because the benefit we've seen in transplant has not just been through the use of high It's been the use of continuous maintenance therapy. Exactly. So if you look at head-to-head, what's the best PFS we used to see in the pre-maintenance era? It was about two and a half years. Two and a half to three years is the median PFS of an unmaintained remission. Well, that's sort of what it looks like a car is in fifth-line therapy. We don't know what it's going to look like in earlier-line therapy. But I sort of wonder whether either way you're gonna need a little bit of maintenance and maybe it can be shorter um, uh, if you're choosing one treatment versus another. But yeah. but those trials are ongoing as we speak. Exactly. Um, what about uh, infections with BCMA-directed therapy uh, with long-term
2: use? No, these are great questions. So I, I think especially in our relapse refractory patients, they're just at a much higher risk of infections from the disease itself and the prior therapies. Um, we are seeing different infections now. So things that we see with transplants, we're seeing more viral CMV, uh, you know, other um, um, viral adenovirus, those types of things. We are seeing some fungal infections every once in a while, and depending on where you are in the country and what's endemic to your area. So really, most of us for CAR-T and biospecifics are either monitoring things like CMV. For us in Texas, 90% of people had exposed exposure, so we're being extra careful. But then anytime, you know, we use antiviral prophylaxis, of course, we are working on PJP prophylaxis, especially when these T cells are being used up and, and not active. They're, they're at a higher risk of PJP. Um, and then IVIG, we are being very aggressive with IVIG therapy. Um, and for COVID, we're actually trying to give them the antibodies because vaccine responses, especially in these relapse refractory patients, um, aren't as high. So if I can give them the antibody ahead of time, um, I think that helps.
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's, um, it's really interesting. The, the Antibody responses to vaccines are pretty suppressed in patients getting BCMA-directed therapy or anti-CD38-directed therapy. And we've now taken, at least at our, at our place now, while Shield works, and we're not sure how much longer Shield will continue to be F provide effective protection, but certainly using that in all of them um, until you see some level of immune recovery post-ACAR, I think is, nice. is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the infection issue, you know, we're starting to see not just fungal infections that we didn't see before, but, you know, reactivation of CMV. I mean, that, that and, and we have somebody who's pancytopenic 30 days out and CMV was 2000. Um, so I think these are real issues that we need to be systematic in terms of how we check. And if a patient comes back to you, you need to be sure that you're checking those viral serologies as well, because it can sneak up on you uh, in the first six months of therapy
2: if CARMA-3 data are confirmed, would you consider a CAR-T an early relapse for patients who have been exposed to upfront CD38s? And I think um, yes. And, and really, my patients who are high risk, those are the patients I can't get to fifth line. Um, we're falling apart. We, you know, we, the right. Plasma cell leukemia. So especially for those patients, I'm hopeful that we can have access to earlier lines of therapy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you know what we focused on in terms of the data presentations today were the four or more prior lines of therapy, because those are the labels, and that's where the data is probably most plentiful. But I think what you're going to see in the coming years is movement of all of this to earlier lines of therapy, and then the question is not just how do we continue the train of acronyms and short regimens that nobody can remember, um, but how do we ultimately get to a point where we stop treating and ultimately cure a subset of patients, a larger subset of patients. Uh, because I think that's what the patients want. That's what we all want as well. All right. Well, um, thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. And thank you again to Dr. Patel for joining us today. And thank you for joining us. And have a great rest of the meeting.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FMJ860. This educational activity is supported through independent medical education grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.